portents and evil winds that flow out of the sky windmill of time. <laughs> you like that, huh? Oh, yeah. I mean, well, before we get any uh, further into this thing, I have to warn any of you out there, you know, science and the uh, fashion and the uh, sport and everything else is all sort of getting combined today. I mean, after all, you know, you have uh, guys that study uh, the musculature of the human frame who turn out to be... Uh, relief pitchers and they uh, you know oh yes very serious you don't just get out and rear back and thrum that ball no more i mean uh, everything has to be very scientifically explained and studied and uh, so as a word of warning i'd have to uh, come right on record here is telling you that any of you people who are wearing these rugby shirts you better be careful you know what the rugby shirt is it's a big new style and uh uh, you got to be careful because uh, you may get yourself uh, bashed in the mouth. Uh, you may get yourself a, yeah, you may get a mouthful of knuckles if you're not careful, buddy, and I'll tell you why, because, you know, i got a couple of these rugby shirts and, and uh, you know, uh, Montgomery Ward specials, and uh, and uh, the other night I'm, uh, I'm at this cocktail party and I'm wearing one of these rugby shirts and I'm walking around and eating the hors d'oeuvres and... Uh, trying to look like I belong at the party, see, when all of a sudden this guy with a great set of mutton chops and a, a salt-and-pepper mustache of the RAF variety and wearing this uh, Saville Row suit comes over to me, and I figured, you know, he just wants to say hello, and he walks up and he goes, oh, sure, excuse me. And I said, yes, sir, a gentleman of great uh, dignity. He says, oh, but that uh, shirt you're wearing, sir. And I said, yes. He says, by George, the Westminster Blues. I said, uh, the what? You're wearing the colors of the Westminster Blues. I says, uh, oh, I'm wearing a rugby shirt. I, I got it at Montgomery Wards. By God, sir, you have no right to wear that shirt. And I says, I have no I bought it. It's, uh, you know, it's uh, 1995. That's the color of the Westminster Blues, and you have no right to wear that shirt, sir. You are not a member of that team. <laughs> so... Excuse me, I'll be right back. And I scurried around the hors d'oeuvre table, and I went back and hid in the men's room. See, I waited till the party was over before I came out because he was going to hit me with his bumper shoot. Now, all I got to say, friends, is when you're wearing your rugby shirt, you better be careful where you're wearing. In fact, in fact, a friend of mine the other day got into trouble wearing one of these things. He was wearing the colors of the New Zealand blacks. Now. Apparently, the New Zealand Blacks are a very controversial team. It's like going out wearing a, a shirt of the Philadelphia Flyers. You know, it's a fist-fighting, mean, ugly team. And there he was. He was wearing the New Zealand Blacks. And the guy came up to him, gave him a shot in the ribs. Said, by God, you gentlemen play a game that isn't a gentleman's game. He gave him a shot right out of the kidney. Oh, what do you do?
Once in a while, you got to show the colors and, uh, you know, let them know. <laughs> uh, I wonder how many people, uh, you know, really, seriously, I wonder how many people just don't realize these these uh, these are very, very uh, highly honored and very serious uh, colors when you're wearing one of these rugby shirts. You know, this is, you know what this one is here, by the way? This is the shirt, the official color of the Leeds team. I'm wearing right now. You see, it's like walking around town wearing a New York Yankees shirt. You know, it says on the back, uh, you know, Roy White. You got, you know, people say, "Well, are you Roy White?" Say, well, no, no. I see. Ignorance can lead you into some awful bad scenes. And of course, the British and the Empire and uh, what was the Empire, the Commonwealth, is very, very symbol conscious. We use symbols as decor. I mean, but the British are very symbol conscious. So the old school tie means that. You do not go around wearing a tie that is the colors of, let's say, Cambridge. You simply don't unless you went there. And if you didn't go there and you're wearing a Cambridge tie, buddy, that is like the worst social boo-boo you can make. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, and everybody is, you know, going around wearing uh, Princeton T-shirts now, and they're wearing uh, Rutgers T-shirts and stuff. Half these guys that are wearing these things never even got through seventh grade. Now, <laughs> it's the truth. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, symbols are very important. And uh, so tonight, uh, speaking of symbol, friends, we, uh, we'd like to salute an artist who has made a, since this is a bicentennial year, we have to talk about, you know, bicentennial things once in a while. After all, I think we concentrate too much on the uh, on the revolutionary period, you know, the Thomas Jefferson period. A lot of stuff happened, you know, from that time on. And, uh, it's all part of America's past 200-year history. Sure. And uh, I'd like to salute a uh, an artist who is working in that department in Salem, Oregon. And now an artist, what is an artist? You know, he's supposed to, supposed to uh, interpret his world around him. And, and uh, in a very real sense, he's supposed to preserve it so that 100 years from now, 200 years from now, people who uh, have no knowledge of our time can go back and look at the work of an artist, and he says, oh, look at that. That's the way a train looks, magnificent. Uh, look at that. There's a kitchen. And uh, isn't that just a super... If you ever seen the Dutch school of painting of, uh, you know... Howells and Vermeer, you look at these and they have these great Dutch interiors of a couple hundred years ago, you know, and uh, you see this peasant lady peeling potatoes and you see just what their life was like, see, and <laughs> and, and the artist should do this, uh, not all artists, but uh, many artists should, and here is a man in Salem, Oregon, we have to salute Bernard Eubanks, 81, who was an artist, and what he does, he renders absolutely beautiful accurate drawings of great American outhouses. Well, now, wait a minute. That was an important part of the landscape. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, yes, he great. And did you know that the outhouse, I, I had no idea. I did not realize that the outhouse achieved great architectural distinction at one point. 
you know, when you think of an outhouse, you always think of this little shed in the back of the barn. No way! Let's face it, if you had a, uh, a magnificent 27-room uh, uh, estate somewhere, uh, you had to have an outhouse. I mean, you, <laughs> I mean that's just the way it was. So what, what did you have, see? You didn't put a little shack up back. Oh, no! In fact, look at this magnificent... Here's a drawing, one of his drawings, a magnificent outhouse that looks like a Chinese pagoda. See, these are actual outhouses that he's drawing. He didn't, he didn't invent them. This is a magnificent outhouse. And this particular outhouse is a sketch of one that a very rich Colorado prospector had built behind his very rich house outside of Denver. He had a big face with the gold. So he's got an outhouse, I'll tell you. It looks like a cross between uh, Lincoln Center with just a little touch of the uh, Grand Hall of the People at uh, Shanghai. So well, he had a lot of uh, Oriental influence there. And so he says, uh, this artist, uh, he does all these great buildings, but primarily outhouses. Uh, his first love as an artist is outhouses. And he's sketching these outhouses, and they're becoming part you know, of <laughs> exhibitions, Smithsonian Institution and all that. His eyes light up says, when you discuss outhouses. He says, I sell my other stuff just to keep me in work with my real art. He says, nobody buys my paintings and drawings of outhouses. He says, I'm doing it for art's sake, for posterity. So I just do all this other horses and mountains and stuff, or, you know, the, the, the general slob art fan. He says, do you realize that these outhouses played a major role in the settling of the West? Yes, that would be a major role. You have to concede that. Mr. Whipple would have liked to have uh, seen a few of these uh, great outhouses, and he says that the first thing the settler did, no matter where he went, was to build a privy. And after that, he went on and built the cabin or the house or whatever, uh, and went and cleared the land. But the first thing he built was this privy, and often the privy set the style for the house he was to build later. You see, because <laughs> the privy came first. So... Uh, uh, he says, no, some of them are very lavish. In fact, there's a picture of this lavish one. He says, a miner in Colorado stuck it rich and had his outhouse done in the same architecture as his resplendent home. Touches of oriental uh, elegance and opulence, a little Byzantine here and there, you know, a little Baroque. And he says, and uh, in fact, he says, here, he takes another painting down. I wish I had this one. He says, there's one in Montana that uh, was magnificently carpeted with oriental rugs. And it had a, a, a porcelain Dutch imported heating stove in it. You know, the kind with the little uh, blue windmills all over it. He says, very elegant. <laughs> and he said, so so uh, I would just like to salute the American artist there. I mean, uh, uh, you know, he has to, we're putting this down for the record that there was one guy that was interested in it. And by the way, speaking of... Uh, of American art. We have a note here from one of our listener types, the kids. He says, uh, Shepard, you must have listened to the radio when you were a kid. And what did you listen to? I had to make clear up a misconception. I was not a radio fan as a kid. In fact, I rarely listened to the radio. No, that's right. I was a radio equipment freak. That's a very different thing. You understand that many hi-fi people can't stand music. <laughs> yes, oh yes. They, 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 the idea of building the perfect amplifier and, uh, and uh, you know, running through it, a perfect test tone and, test tone and getting a perfect uh, 
uh, picture on the scope with absolutely no distortion. It doesn't have anything to do with listening to the Firebird Suite. In short, you can be hung on equipment and have no interest whatsoever in uh, what the equipment actually does. I mean, let's face it. I mean, you can build great model ships, but that does not mean that you're a whaler. <laughs> I mean, and, and so I was really into equipment. And, and, and how this came about, well, we will tell you the sickening story. Immediately following this station break, which is WOR New York, one of the great pioneer stations. You know, we're ready. A three-letter call, WOR New York. It's one of the old great calls in American radio history. Now, there are a lot of radio stations that have come on, you know, since WR first went on the air. like trillions. But uh, there are great stations all over the country that, that stand like, uh, you might say, the monuments in the radio world. WLW, right? Cincinnati. WGN, Chicago. Right? KDKA. WOR, New York. These are all the great behemoths. In fact, uh, they were the people who settled the West. You might say they populated the kilocycles, right? And the first thing they built was the privy. This is WOR New York. It, uh, <laughs> let's play some of these goodies on them. <laughs> Previews now. Uh, 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue opens May 4th. No, that's English, isn't it? Boy, what does Hail to the Chief go like? It's on the tip of my tongue, Hail to the Chief. How does it go? Da, da, da. No. Da, 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 da. No, no, no. Can't remember how Hail to the Chief. They don't play it often when I show up. I haven't heard it some time. It's been some time. You have to make me get that occasionally. How does it go now? Let's see. That's, that's maddening. Hail to the Chief. How does it go? Let's see. No, come on, don't play. That's the John Gambling theme. Sorry, that has been hailed to the chief. Well, of course, you can see the point there. But uh, how does it go? It goes, uh, let's see. Uh, I'm trying to picture, you know, a president going up on the stand there. And, uh, no, no, that's something else. I'm turning around. The flagpole, no, that's not it. No, that's not it. No, I'm sorry. We give up there. Okay, we got to get back here. You see, the minute we start doing a show, everybody gets nervous around here because this is the reason we're here. You know, sometimes I feel like a giant walking J.C. Whitney catalog. <laughs> Unbelievable. Hey, when are they working? You know, they're working on a new technique to be able to play seven, eight commercials at once. You know, yeah, they are, you know, and it, it, they'll, they'll all be sent out at different frequencies. Yes, and so you, uh, they call that super packing. And so in one minute, you can get seven, eight, maybe up to 200 commercials all at once. You know, <laughs> oh, it's sent. Yes, uh, technology, oh, don't worry, I know, I know, I know all about it. Don't, don't, let me handle the show. You handle the knobs, Okay. It's still on the tip of my head. What does Hail to the Chief sound like? Let's see. No, that's the Marine Corps song. Uh, let's see. Uh, try another one now. 
That's close. No, that's yeah. That's the uh, Air Corps song. Yeah. Da 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 da. Yeah. Off we go again into the wild view. Yeah, I remember that. Da 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 da. And now to calm them down in the control room. They're all nervous. Why did they all have to be together? What's the matter with you guys? Now, uh, that's that's enough of that. But, uh, all right, let's, we have uh, just a few moments here. We can try to sneak in a little show here. You know, might you have any more you want to play? I mean, you have some that's left over from other programs or, you know, stuff that might come on. We'll play it anyway in case they want to come on. Anything like that, huh? Okay. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> so, all just aside, though, I have to pick up the question of this, uh, you know, the philosophical question this kid. You must have. Now, I, I have to clear up a conception that no in my life was I a radio fan. No way. Uh, in fact, nobody in my family, except my mother. And she wasn't a radio fan. She had this old she had this radio, this ACDC radio, Nights, with a K, and I. And it had this white plastic uh, cabinet. It was the kind that sat up on top of the refrigerator. Yeah, it was a. And it had a crack in it. And she used to periodically replace the uh, adhesive tape that held it together. It had a fantastic hum. And uh, she would have that on when she was doing the dishes. And you could hear Bing Crosby always sing. He was always singing something called Sweet Layla, Heavenly Flower. Oh, and it would be humming away there. That's, <laughs> that was the only radio that went on in our house. And so if you come to me and ask me whatever Fred Allen said, I couldn't tell you. Because I was out knocking fly balls at the time. We're playing pool. So I was not a, a radio fan. I'll tell you this, though. I got to be a radio equipment freak. And to this day, I remain that. Uh, very much so. And, and, and I'll tell you how it happened. My old man was a radio equipment freak. You know, I think any psychologist that listening, you know, they're always talking about sexual... Uh, yeah, uh, overtones, the Freudian stuff, and so on. You know, always say, uh, you must have had a trauma. Uh, but there are a lot of things that affect a kid, uh, that have nothing to do with any of this. Uh, just, just seeing somebody do something very exotic, and you're really knocked out. And as a kid, my old man, I remember scenes when I'd come home, you know, I'd be like five or six or eight or something like that. And the old man, he believed that he knew about radio. Technical. See, not radio programs. I must repeat, there's a difference. Today, people hardly pay any attention to their radio. They, all they, they turn it on, you know, that's it. But he really thought he knew about equipment. And uh, like all uh, freaks of any period in history, he had to get the best. So if you're a car freak, even though you're barely eating, you tend to buy a Jaguar. <laughs> you know, it's a thing. And uh, if, you're, if you're a stamp freak, even though you haven't been able to pay your rent, you go out and buy this rare stamp if you get a chance to see that. That's true freakism. You know, you just give up everything just for this thing. Well, he bought this radio, and it, his life centered around that radio when he was not bowling. He was a great bowler. But this radio, he did not listen to this radio. In other words, he didn't come in and turn it on and hear Fibber McGee. Oh, no. He had a an E.H. Scott all-wave DX. 23. I remember the, the, the uh, uh, you know, even the name of it was, it was an E.H. Scott all-wave DX-23. Man, it had 23 tubes in it. 
And it was some radio, I want to tell you. Uh, you know, it was fantastic. We had an iron uh, that must have been 500 years old. It was always blowing up on my mother. But we had the greatest radio in the history of the Western world. And it was it, the whole house, you know, nobody was allowed to touch it. In fact, it was a, there was a, an absolute standing rule. Get away from the radio. Don't get near it. And they had a tremendous cabinet. It was hand-carved walnut cabinet. It was one of these big, they called it a high boy. What's the matter? Like, you, God, you're writing in there today. And it had sliding doors. You'd slide the doors back. And there were knobs all over it. It had a great big airplane dial. It had about 15 different scales on it. You know, it said 19 meters. And it had little red blotches where the 19 meters would it had little little tiny lights that would light up and say Warsaw <laughs> you know and stuff like uh, Czechoslovakia and all marked in a dial See, it had police frequencies and aircraft and all that stuff and it was fantastic well the old man used to take the radio out come home see and, and I never was allowed to get near the radio except that I knew this radio was like, uh, you know, if you're an eight-year-old kid, you're not allowed to jump into the Ferrari. You know, put your feet up on the dashboard. No way. And uh, so nobody could touch the radio. But once, like every month, the old man would take the radio out of the cabinet. It slid out. It had a chassis, a big chassis. And he would slide it out of the cabinet, unplug the speakers and all the stuff in the back. had these big plugs. He'd take it out, and he would very carefully... And everybody had to stand back, you know, like the parting of the Red Sea. He had to stand back while he carried it in to the kitchen at this white kitchen table. You know, one of these enameled kind, you know, with the chips on it and all. And he would very carefully put down papers and everything, and he would lower the chassis onto the table. Now, what would he do with it? See, nothing was wrong. The radio was playing great. But what would he do with it? Well, he would carefully take off all the tube shields, lay them out in the line, see. So they went back on the right right tube sockets and he'd take out each tube it had six C5s it had uh, it had uh, six SJ7s and all these great things and he'd polish them polish every tube see because he had this theory that if if dust got on the tube that the, the tube and then he was actually right that it would run hotter you see because it would not radiate the heat right so he'd polish the tube then he put it all in a row. He had all these tubes all laid out, and he had a big can of carbon tet with a brush. And he would very carefully then turn the radio over, and he would very carefully, with carbon tetrachloride, he'd, he'd carefully clean all the band switching contacts. You know, they had this big band switching to switch uh, from various coils, you know. And he'd carefully clean all the carbon tet. With the carbon tape, clean all these things. And I'd, me and my kid brother, would stand at back, you know, at a distance and watch him do this. Because he said, no, don't get near it. Don't get near it. He says, you're liable to knock the chassis over. Don't touch it. Don't touch it. And he carefully cleaned the wave band contacts. And then he would he would go over all the all the connections. You know, it was all solder connections. He would go over all the connections. And he very carefully clean it. He would clean out the, the tube sockets and everything. Then he'd take it over on the top, see, and he had one of these little jeweler bulbs, like, with a little little uh, nozzle that came out as it blows air, and he'd go, <laughs> he cut every grain of dust off the chest. It was sparkling. Then he would say, okay, now, he's had this for about three hours during his uh, radio repair night, 
you know, the figure, everything is, is done for that night. You got you can't even come in the kitchen, see. Then he would very carefully carry it back and slide it into the cabinet, plug it in, and then he'd turn it on. Of course, he's cleaned all the pilot lights in there and the dial lights up. He'd say, wow, listen to that. He said, now it's really working again. It's working great. Of course, you couldn't tell any difference, see. But he figured he could really hear the difference. He tunes around. Now, what did he actually listen to? Well, all right, I'll tell you what he'd listen to. <laughs> You're really curious. He would listen to, uh, for example, one of the big things he listened to, every night when he would get home in time, you know, from the office, he'd come in maybe at 5.30, quarter, 6 o'clock, like he'd rush into the into the living room, turn on his radio to warm it up. So he'd, he'd adjust all the dials and everything, and, he'd, and it had a BFO on it, you see. You could hear, yes, it had a, B, a beat frequency oscillator. And he'd tune it up, and, and he'd stand back, and exactly at six we would hear, and, and he loved to he loved to do this. He'd turn up the game, you would hear, boom, and the voice would come on and say, "This is London calling. It's the BBC. That's what he listened to." He'd flip. I mean, and then he'd take out a chart. He always kept a chart, see, as to how how they were coming in today, whether they were coming in louder today or not. You know, he kept charts. And then, then uh, once in a great while, when he was home in the evening, what would he listen to? Do you think he sat around and listened to Fur of a Gear? Are you kidding? Oh, no. There was a, uh, up around 80 meters in those days, if you know anything about uh, uh, the allocation of frequencies. Uh, there was a little narrow band on his receiver that was marked aircraft. And he loved to listen to this, you know. And he'd listen. Oh, wow, he that flight. He said, shh. And he was always listening to aircraft. Now, now I don't know, you know, whether, whether uh, uh, this uh, affects you as powerfully as it affected me. But uh, this was such a big special, it was almost like a religion in the house, you know, don't touch the old man's radio. And he, there was a, a drawer in the bottom of his cabinet, in this big cabinet, and the drawer had a place in there where he kept all of his logs. He would log all this stuff in a very neat, had it all neatly uh, lined out, frequency, hour, time, conditions, what the weather was like the day he heard this stuff. Oh, man, you know. And from that minute, you know, I, I just, you know, just, it's just even to this day, just, just, uh, just as I, as I think in my mind, as I, as I think of an IC or I think of a, a transistor, there's nothing more beautiful than, uh, than, than to see a beautifully harnessed, well, magnificently wired piece of equipment. All that harness, all that color-coded wiring, and the magnificent resistors. <laughs> So don't come and, uh, you know, ask me, well, uh, hey, Chuck, did you ever listen to? No, no, you're not listening to Joel Siegel tonight, friend. This is another ball game we're playing here. In other words, let's put it this way. This could be called almost anti-kitch, right? After all, an AD1 amplifier using a push-pull parallel 6 l 6 is hardly kitsch. Well, 
pitcher till it comes out of your ears. Stay tuned for In Conversation.